everybody. Welcome to your Sunday sermon with Brad Tilton Ministries. I am really glad you're with me today. We're going to talk about something that I believe is just so important for all of us to know and to apply to our lives. We've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, the persecuted church and those that are dealing with severe persecution because of their faith in Christ and the cost that they pay to to stand for Christ. People that have become converted from Islam or Hinduism and they come to faith in Christ, they are immediately at that point sub subjected to potential death at any moment, even by family and what they consider to be honor killings by Muslims and, and of their own family. And they go through horrific things for the cause of Christ, again, because once they get converted, they count the cost. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And this section of verses in the book of Luke is a one of the areas that Jesus talked about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. And our title of our sermon today is The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 25 through 33. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. All right, the cost of discipleship. Here we go. Now large crowds were going along with him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, now these words are in red, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whew, that's deep. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Verse 29, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who are watching it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000? Otherwise, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. <laughs> Man, we are living in a day where churches preach these soft sell sermonettes that uh, have nothing in it that would bring anyone to conviction about their sin or want them to repent or there's, there's no talk of holiness and fear of God, you know, and you look at Jesus, he did not, yes, he was, he was uh, all kind, all loving and all that, but when he dealt with situations, he was a very truth-talking person, obviously, very straightforward. This is direct. This is very direct. I mean, you have to look at the proper inter interpretation of this to really get the full picture here, because some people, in, in just skimming over this and reading it, they're going to go, wow, that Jesus is mean, or how can he say that? But we're going to break it down and show you what he means with this. So remember, it's all under the topic of the cost of discipleship. 
pollster, you know the name George Gallup. Well, he's a pollster. Pollster George Gallup contends that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed. He said most of those who profess Christianity don't know basic teachings and don't act differently because of their Christian experience. George Barna found that almost half, 46% of evangelicals read their Bible only once a week or not at all. So our text this week shows us the cost of following Christ. And it teaches us that to follow or to truly follow Jesus Christ, we must consider the cost and put him above everything else. And that's what I read a lot about in these books, as I've been talking about in the last few sermons, about these converts and these other nations of their hostile or restricted toward Christians, and they give their lives to Christ. They have to count the cost because the cost is very clear to them. It could be their very life. I, I, want, I want to start off with this statement. Salvation is both absolutely free, and yet it costs you your very life. You receive it freely at no expense, but once you receive salvation, you have just committed everything you are and have to Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be someone that follows after Christ. And someone may protest that and say, well, that sounds like a contradiction to me. How can something be both free and costly at the same time? So in order to answer that, I have an illustration for you. Let me illustrate this. Suppose that I had a desire to climb Mount Everest, but it costs about $70,000 to do it, and I don't have that kind of money. Suppose a wealthy businessman heard of my desire and offered to pay for the entire expedition. He would buy all the expensive clothing and gear. He would pay for my transportation, the guides, and the training. It's totally free for me. But if I accept his offer, his free offer, I have just committed myself to months of difficult training and arduous effort. It could cost me even my very life because many good climbers die trying to climb Mount Everest. It is free and yet very costly. Or consider a friend who offers me a free ride in his airplane. He invites me to come along at his expense. In accepting his free offer, I've just committed my very life to him. If he flies safely, I am safe. If he crashes, I die. The instant I say yes to his free offer, I am totally committed to him. I have entrusted my very life into his hands. Wow, that is absolutely powerful, powerful stuff. Jesus Christ freely offers the water of life to everyone who thirsts, but it will cost you something to be a, hear this, it will cost you something to be a true follower or disciple of Christ. And we need to understand that when we receive Christ's free offer, we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. Thus, to truly follow after Christ, 
we must consider the cost and not begin to follow him superficially, only to turn back later when things get tough. Man, this this just relates to my life and all oh, this so speaks to me and is so challenging to me and so instigating to me. This is what Jesus is warning about in our text. He's one of the things he's warning about is that it is possible to follow Christ superficially. Verse 25 is crucial for interpreting what follows. He says, great multitudes were going along with him. Now, every pastor would love that kind of a congregation. Every ministry desires more followers because we measure success by numbers. Again, it says great, number, great multitudes were going along with him. But Jesus was different. Hear this. Jesus was different. Large crowds did not fool him. He knew that many were following him for selfish or superficial reasons. In other words, it, for some, it was the exciting thing to do. You know, you wonder sometimes, how do some people get all these followers and all these people? Well, it seems to be the exciting thing to do, but it can yet be very superficial. Maybe you were someone you knew would be healed, but Jesus was not a false recruiter. He was not a false recruiter. He wanted to weed out those who followed him for superficial reasons. Because when the battle heated up, he knew that they would fall away and cause damage for his cause. Powerful, man. So he turned to the great multitude and laid out these demands of discipleship. Think about it. These people are following him in mass. A lot of people would say, look at this, look at what I, you know, look at all these people that follow me. Oh, this is great. And most people would never say anything that would try to offend those people or that would offend them in any way because they don't want to lose their followers. That's not what Jesus was like. He purposely turned to that multitude and laid out these very strong demands of discipleship. And at the outset, I, I want to point you to something that's, uh, out there in many evangelical circles, there is this sh sharp distinction uh, that many draw between salvation and discipleship. And I'll try to I'll, I'll try to make I'll go slow and make this very clear. Salvation, and I know this to be true. Salvation, many say, is God's free gift, but discipleship is costly. They try to separate the two. They would also say that while every believer ought to pursue discipleship that it's not linked to saving faith. So you can get saved, but you don't really have to hard pursue after Christ. In other words, there's some who are truly saved, they're saying, but who never commit themselves to being disciples. They say that it is possible to receive Jesus as their Savior, but not to follow him as Lord. Listen, I cannot find any basis in the New Testament, and I can, yet I can find many scriptures that can refute that particular teaching. Once you commit your life to him as savior, he now becomes the Lord of your life and you now are committed to him wholeheartedly to follow after him, not superficially, but wholeheartedly committed to follow after him. To believe in Jesus Christ as savior necessarily entails following him as Lord. Somebody say amen to that. Listen, salvation is not a decision that a man makes, but it is the mighty power of God. We've talked about this. It's the mighty power of God in raising a dead soul 
to eternal life. God, who began the good work in you, will perfect it unto the day of Christ Jesus. The new life God imparts inevitably results in a new way of life in accord with its nature, namely growth in holiness. The seed of the word will bear fruit unto eternal life. And man, I see this, this aspect of what we've been talking about and so many people that are out there that I'm around who call themselves Christians. They go to this particular church and they'll, they'll make sure they tell you what church they go to, but then you look at their lives and they talk like heathens. They act like heathens. They tell heathenistic, dirty, filthy jokes, but they will say that they go to this church that they are a believer. But let me tell you something, they're either not a believer, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, or somewhere in there, there is a super, they are not following Jesus as a disciple. They have not counted the true cost of discipleship. While believers must grow as disciples, and while we are never perfectly, we never perfectly arrive in this life, and we all know that, if a person claims to be a believer, but he isn't seeking to grow in obedience to Christ. He is fooling himself. That's powerful, man. He's saying, Lord, Lord, but on that fearful day, he will hear the awful words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. So he's out there saying, I'm a believer. I'm saying, Lord, Lord. Have I not done, Lord, Lord. And whenever that word's repeated, that means that person thinks they have an intimate relationship. But because of the way they live their life, it's so, um, there's gonna come a time where people like that, many like that are going to hear, depart from me, I've never known you. In Paul's words, in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Whew. Wow, that's Titus 1.16. Thus, it is possible to follow Christ superficially, and it is to such followers that Jesus lays out the cost of discipleship in these verses, because he knows the battle's going to be intense, and he doesn't want to recruit anyone under false pretenses. And every evangelist out there needs to hear that statement. He knows the battle's going to be intense, and he doesn't want to recruit anyone under false pretenses. That's why we've been talking about 2 Timothy, things like the Apostle Paul talking to young Timothy and telling him, you're going to suffer. He doesn't want to see him start out in his ministry under any false pretense. This is going to be difficult, and your life is going to be difficult in your pursuit of doing these things for God. To follow Christ truly, we must consider the cost. So in that, Jesus first lays out two of the costs of discipleship, verses 26 and 27. Then he gives two parables in verses 28 through 32 that make the same overall point, namely that a person must give careful consideration to the cost before he rash, rashly jumps into it. Then he states a third cost of discipleship in verse 33. Then in verses 34 and 35, he gives an illustration about salt 
to illustrate the cost of not truly following him, he concludes with a warning, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So before we look at the cost that Jesus spells out, think with me for a moment. I, and I really want you to look at this with me for a moment. Think about these phrases that we just read in that section of scriptures. You, you see the word sit down and calculate the cost, which was referring to the man building the tower in verse 28. And then you see sit down and consider, referring to the king considering going to war in verse 31. Both, both refer to careful, detailed, rational thinking in which you consider all aspects of what you're getting into before you make the commitment. Listen, this careful thinking is completely opposed to impulsive decision-making that's made in a moment of intense emotion without much thought about the consequences. Remember who's preaching to you Yes, I pastor, but I am an evangelist, and I have seen in meetings of holding evangelistic outreaches, I've seen this, these impulsive decisions that were made in a moment of intense emotion. And I go on to say, actually, my next statement in the sermon is, our evangelistic methods today are big on emotion and little on reason. Big on emotion and little on reason. We get people into a stadium give you an example, to hear testimonies. They bring in famous athletes or movie stars and talk, who talk about how Christ changed their lives. You've seen that before. Then they hear this great speaker promise how Christ can meet the person's every need. Then the invitation is given and counselors are primed to get out of their seats and walk forward so that people on the verge of decision think that others are going forward. The choir or the band is playing a song of invitation. Going forward feels like the right thing to do. In a swell of emotion, the person gets out of his seat and decides for Christ. But did that person really get saved? By God's grace, some do. But listen, even well-known evangelists I, myself and other evangelists that are out there, uh, we will admit that this um, long-term stick-with-it rate for those who make decisions like that is about 10 to 15%. You see, and, and listen, I've been a part of this. I've seen crowds of, I, I've literally preached in um, what comes to mind. Uh, I was in a school in Africa. We were in, it was in a meeting, actually a, a meeting. We were in a school. It had a balcony and there were Hundreds and hundreds, a couple thousand people there. And I think almost every single person came down to the altar to be saved. But did they all get saved? Was, was a lot of this, you know, I'm sure some did. I'm sure some were moved by emotion. But that's the point of this. There needs to be, he's talking about there was some thought put into this. And again, a lot of these books that I read would have these true accounts of those coming to Christ. A lot of these people who have been converted to Christianity, they've actually, they actually put thought into it. I mean, they, they, they've been given, uh, Christ has appeared to them, or they've been given the gospel, or someone gives them a New Testament, and along their journey, they start to count the cost. They realize that the cost is, if I do this, I'm going to potentially be dead the next day if someone finds out, but I'm, I'm going to do it, I'm going to pay the cost of discipleship, and I'm going to follow after Jesus. 
That's why Jesus is talking this way. I've seen this in these real life accounts. Um, but I think a lot of people make these very emotional decisions. Here, Jesus says to the crowds who were interested enough to be going along with him, consider the cost of following me. So Jesus spells out three costs. Number one, in verse 26, this is, this is pretty straightforward. He says, we must hate our families and, our, and ourselves. Whew, I mean, doesn't the Bible say that we're supposed to love our families? Doesn't it say that no man ever hated his own flesh? Is Jesus contradicting the Bible? Well, of course he's not doing that. But he puts it in these terms for shock value. To get us to stop and think about the stringent demand that he is making. He means that our allegiance and love for him must be so great that by comparison, our love for our families and even for our own lives looks like hatred. Wrap your mind around that. Let me say it again. He means that our allegiance, and if you're not in love with Christ at all, or you don't, you don't have a deeper, you, you don't get this, he means that our allegiance and love for him must be so great that by comparison, our love for our families and even our own lives looks like hatred. Normally, there is no conflict between loving Christ and our family members, but sometimes there's a tug of war that develops. And again, in those books I read, man, when someone comes to Christ, you just see hatred amongst the family against the person that accepted Christ as their savior. So this tug of war develops where a family member puts pressure on, on someone, us or someone, to back off from or even abandon our love for Christ. Those are very difficult situations. And we do not love, in those difficult situations, we do not love either Christ or the family member if we consent to the pressure, if we give into it. We don't love either one. We do not love the family member because if we bow to the pressure, we are saying that Christ is not worthy of being followed above all others, and we keep the family member from seriously considering the claims of Christ. We then also don't love Christ because we put a sinful human being, our family member, who did not give him or herself for our sins, in a higher place than the spotless Lamb of God who freely offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So when Jesus says that we must hate even our own lives, again, he means in comparison, in comparison with our love for him. That's how much we should love him. Amen. And normally when we follow Christ, he just lovingly gives us the desires of our hearts. He floods us with joy. He gives us true pleasure. But there are times when it is easy to give in to the immediate gratification of the flesh and it is hard to obey Christ. You've all walked that before. The disciple has thought this through in advance and is committed to follow after Christ. Number two on the aspect of paying a cost, number two is we must carry our own cross. That's in verse 27. Please understand that the cross was not an implement of irritation or inconvenience. The cross was an implement of slow, torturous death. Jesus here is looking 
at the process. So he's saying we must carry our own cross. He's, he's talking about a process of daily death to selfish desires and of the willingness to bear reproach for his namesake. That's what it means to carry our own cross, to die daily, die to selfish desires and the willingness to bear reproach for his namesake. Listen, since Jesus suffered the rejection and agony of the cross, if we follow after him, we must be prepared for the same treatment. Amen? Ah, oh, Jesus, so powerful. If people revile us for being Christians, we must bless them in return. That's, that's how we deal with that. We should never do anything to provoke persecution, but if we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we must entrust our souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right. 1 Peter 4, 19. Again, I'll repeat, you see that in the lives of those in these hostile nations to Christianity, in the lives of those who come to faith in Christ. They, they don't do anything to provoke persecution, and then they suffer for the sake of righteousness. At that moment, you can read so many of them that basically say this same thing. They've entrusted their soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Jesus knows what's best for them. Again, this is a process that we have to, uh, in which we all must grow. Amen. If we blow it, we must confess it to the Lord and seek to be obedient. The next time we have opportunity to suffer for him. And someone says, I don't want to suffer. The Bible says, in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul talked many places about suffering for the cause of Christ. Again, I say it's happening in nations around the world. We're already seeing it in this country right now. The attack on Christianity and anybody that stands for the Bible, anybody that stands for Christ, Anybody that stands for that, they're going to be they're beginning to be attacked for their belief in Christ, their belief in the Word of God, and I will guarantee you it is going to get worse, worse and worse. This nation's trying to turn itself into a communist nation, and communism and atheism and socialism, they all hate God, the God of the Bible, and they will do anything to wipe it out. So they are going to malign, they are going to impede, they are going to do whatever they can to stop you as a man of God from saying what you believe and from living out what you believe in this nation. Listen, if we're not involved in the process of carrying our own cross in death to self, we are not on the path of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen. And number three, counting the cost, we must give up all our possessions. We see that in verse 33. After telling the two parables about considering the cost before making a commitment, Jesus concludes with this. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Does Jesus literally mean that? Does he literally mean we must get rid of everything we own or take a vow of poverty in order to be a Christian? What does he mean by giving up all our possessions? Well, I believe that Jesus is getting at the fact that there are two possible lords in your life that we can serve, and the two are exclusive, God or mammon. 
God or money. And, and most of us think that we can combine them uh, with God taking the lead. You'll say something like, I'll serve God mostly, but I'd also like to serve money. You see that in a lot of people's lives, even in the church. But Jesus says that won't work. You cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, you can't just add Jesus to your already materialistic lifestyle as a way of rounding out your spiritual needs. To be a true follower of Christ means that you have been bought with a price and you are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Nothing you own is yours. You become the slave of Jesus Christ and he owns everything. And I have absolutely no problem with that because I have a discipleship mindset. I know who my Christ is. I know I love him and I there's there's more I can do. I mean, I, I, I could love him deeper, but I strive every day to love him and follow him as he's called me to follow him, to not look at the world, to not go back to the world, to not follow the world in any way, but to follow after Christ in everything I do, everything I say, act, everything I react to, how I live my life out in public. I wanted to show that I am wholly committed to following after Christ and that nothing is mine. He owns everything in my life. Let me give you an example. This is the story of the pearl of great price. A man sees this pearl and says to the merchant, I want this pearl. How much is it? The seller says, it's very expensive. How much? A lot. What do you think I could buy it? The man asks. Oh yes, says the merchant. Everyone can buy it. But I thought you said it was very expensive. I did. Well, how much? Everything you have, says the seller. All right, I'll buy it. Okay, what do you have? Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000. What else? That's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few dollars more in my pocket. How much? He looks into his pocket, $100. Well, the guy says, well, that's mine too, says the seller. What else do you have? That's all, nothing else. The guy asks him, where do you live? The seller asks, in my house. Yes, I own a home. The seller writes down house, it's mine. Where do you expect me to sleep? Am I camper? Oh, you have a camper, do you? That too. What else? Am I supposed to sleep in my car? Oh, you have a car? Yes, I own two of them. They're mine now too. Lord, look, you've taken my money, my house, my camper, and my cars. Where's my family going to live? Oh, so you have a family? Yes, I have a wife and three kids. They're mine now. Suddenly the seller exclaims, oh, I almost forgot. You yourself too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, Children, house, money, cars, and you too. Then he goes on. Now listen, I will allow you to use all these things for the time being, but don't forget that they're all mine just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because I am now the owner. If you did not get that, I'm not going to repeat it. You need to go back over it. That is powerful illustration of Jesus owns everything I have, including myself. He's just allowing me to use it right now. Jesus means when he says that we must give up all our possessions in order to be a disciple, that's what he means, what we just read right there. 
He isn't just Lord of the tenth. He's Lord of all. We're just managers of it for him. Of course, in return, we gain all the riches of heaven for all eternity. But still, we need to sit down and determine if we're willing to follow Jesus as Lord of everything from our families to our possessions to our very lives. Are you, have you sat down and determined that you're willing to follow him and make him Lord of everything in your life, including yourself? Does your life look like that? That's the way our mindset needs to be to count the cost of discipleship. We also must consider the cost of not following Christ. Listen, if we make a profession of following Christ, but then we go back on our commitment, it talks about it in, in the scriptures that we read, people will ridicule us as they would mock a man who started to build a tower, but he couldn't complete it. They could say something like, he claimed that he became a Christian, but look at him now, some Christian he is. Or we can face damaging effects of being defeated by the enemy because we did not consider the intensity of the battle we were facing. Listen, Satan loves it. He absolutely loves it when a Christian's testimony is ruined because he did not consider the demands of following Christ in this evil world. I repeat, Satan loves it when a Christian's testimony is ruined because he did not consider the demands of following Christ in this evil world. And then Jesus uses a third illustration to show the cost of not following him, that of salt that has become tasteless. So the salt in Jesus's day was often corrupted with other substances. If moisture hit the salt, it would evaporate and leave behind these other impure minerals so that the salt lost its saltiness. It was worthless for any useful purpose and had to be thrown away. So Jesus is saying that if a follower of his doesn't live as he ought to live, he is useless to God. Jesus is saying that if a follower of his does not live as he ought to live, he is useless to God. Whether he's referring to a false believer that's being judged or to a true believer who's being taken out of this life because of his sin, it's a little ambiguous here, but either way, I don't want it to happen to me. The point is, to follow Christ truly, we must put him above everything else in life. And Jesus clearly asserts his absolute supremacy and authority in these verses. Man, this needs to be preached in pulpits uh, all over our nation. Um, said it again, I repeat, instead of giving people out these soft-sell sermonettes that do nothing but try to make people feel good. Remember, the Bible says that many will follow those who, 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 who itch, who, who they have itchy ears and they want someone to scratch them for them so they want to put themselves in front of people who will teach them what they want to hear or preach them what they want to hear what mere man listen this is this is the incredible thing about christ what mere man could rightly claim that everyone must hate their closest family members in comparison to their love for him what mere man could make that claim 
We would call him a cult leader um, unless he were God in human flesh. What man could tell his followers to follow him into death? Jim Jones did, and he was rightly labeled a lunatic, but Jesus Christ could do it because he was God. What man could tell people to give up all their possessions for his sake? Some modern cults require that all their followers, and we rightly label them as false. But Jesus could do so with authority because he is Lord. He alone deserves to be the first above everything else in all of our lives because he, is, because he is the Lord God who willingly offered himself on the cross for our sins. There is a cost to discipleship. You cannot separate discipleship from saving faith. You get saved to then truly follow Christ as a disciple, but you need to sit down and count the cost and what it's going to mean to your life so that you don't do it such in a superficial way that when tough times come, boom, you are out of there. That's not what it's supposed to be like. So in conclusion, these words of Jesus here, they are tough and they are very sobering, right? And we all fall short. We all fall short, but we must honestly work at applying them to our hearts. And that's why I'm giving you this or why the Holy Spirit inspired me to give this to you. You need to learn. You need to begin to apply this to your life. I ask you, is there any relationship that comes ahead of Christ in your life? I'll even ask, is there any, is there anything, recreational activity or whatever you enjoy doing? Is there anything that comes ahead of Christ in your life? If he is first, then obviously you'll be spending consistent time alone with him in his word, in prayer, and in devotion. So if he's really first, you're going to be a consistent prayer, a consistent studier of the word, and, and a consistent person who's in devotion with Christ and staying in his word daily. You're going to be fellowshipping with him every day. You won't allow any other relationship to draw you away from obedience to him. You'll confess and forsake every sin that hinders fellowship with him. That's if you're putting Christ ahead of all other things. So I ask you when we close, is he the Lord of your plans, of your thoughts, and of all that you do? Or could you selfishly be clinging to your plans, to your way, instead of seeking to please him in all things, beginning with every thought that you entertain? If you don't hate your own life, and daily carry your cross, you're not his disciple. If you don't hate your own life and daily carry your cross, you are not his disciple. Is he Lord of your finances? Is he Lord of your possessions? Are you faithful in managing these things for his purposes? Do you give generously and faithfully to his work? Or could the love of money be choking out the word in your life? Salvation is absolutely free, but once you receive it, it costs you everything. Lastly, to follow or to truly follow Christ, we must consider the cost and put him above everything else. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is the Lord of our life. And he, we submit everything that we are and everything that we have to him, even your mouth, the way you talk or the things that you look at. Jesus 
comes first. Listen, you are born again. He brought you from death into life. Don't live like you're still dead. Don't live like some stinking dead person. Live like a follower of Christ. Live as the person that Christ has saved you to be. Live that way and keep on moving forward that way, truly following Jesus as a disciple. That's the cost of discipleship. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I just come before you right now in Jesus' name, and I thank you for this opportunity to share this powerful set of scripture verses with your people today. I pray for anyone that might listen to this, that they would grab a hold of these things and they would begin to apply this teaching to their life. I pray this would convict them. I pray this would challenge them. I pray this would instigate them. It might even make some of them mad, but they finally will come to their senses and realize I'm mad because I'm not living like I should. This bothers me because I'm not truly following Christ as a disciple like I should. Change them, Holy Spirit. Change all of us. Equip all. We, we all make decisions right now to begin to live our lives out for you like we never have before. To count the cost, to reason, to sit down, to count the cost of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And I thank you as we make that decision. Holy Spirit, you'll help us to give us the strength and the wisdom to stay on that path. We praise you for this, and we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, and everybody else said together, amen and amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. I hope this has challenged you. Listen to it again. Give it to somebody else. Let them hear it. There is a cost to discipleship. This is not some superficial journey that we're on. This is something that's intense. This is something that is super, uh, it's, it's powerful. And I'll say the word again, it is an intense journey. Be willing to suffer, be willing to be persecuted for the cause of Christ. That's the cost of discipleship. Amen. God bless you.